Today we'll be in John chapter 3, finishing up this chapter. John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. We're in a sermon series called Don't Miss This on the Gospel of John. As, as I read this gospel, I hear this apostle late in his life, after serving for so many years, after being a pastor, after being a teacher, an evangelist, after being persecuted, and, and I just hear the cry of his heart, don't miss this. Don't miss the importance of who Jesus Christ really and truly is. And so today we're looking at this passage from John twenty or John three twenty two to thirty six. How many of you have been following the Olympics at all? A couple of you, some of you, a couple. I guess today is the end of it, right? Today's the closing ceremony. Um, not sure when that is, but I, I'm I've enjoyed the Olympics. I'm glad that it's over. Uh, I'm I've had it up to here with figure skating, so it's time to move on. Uh, <sighs> Right? Anybody else right there with me? Uh, you know, it's not the sport itself. Like, I, it's amazing. Very impressive. Do you have to talk about every single couple person for like an hour before and after? And it just goes on and on and on. I mean, you can do that with football. It makes sense. But with, with <laughs> figure skate, that's silly. Just silly. Kidding. Might be a little subjective there. But there, there's been two things, among many, there's been a lot of really neat things, but two things have sort of stuck out with me that I want to point out today. Uh, one just happened a few days ago. The Canadian women's hockey team uh, went against the U.S. women's hockey team. I know nothing about hockey, so I might get some of this wrong. But, but it was a, a phenomenal uh, battle, and it was for the gold medal. This was the gold and silver match. And I believe Canada was favored to win. Is that true? And, and U.S. won. So the U.S. women took the gold. And that's amazing. And, and it went into overtime, shootout, whatever they call it, extra innings. I know that's not what it is. But it went to the shootout. And, and it, so it's just, I mean, talk about a nail biter. Now, I didn't see it, but I heard about it later. And what I heard about was what I want to talk to you about today. At the medal ceremony, they're giving out the silver medals. And they're going along to each women's player and putting it on, putting it on, putting it on, you know, smiling. And, and, of course, they just lost lost a, a heartbreaking match. I, I get it. It's, the emotions are running high. But the person, whoever it was, put the medal on one of the players, and the player did this, grabbed it and took it off and just held it down. And, and it was like, no, I don't want it. And, and later she came out, and, and I read her apology, uh, apology and it was, it was well written, and she apologized to the officials and the other team and, and to the Olympics. And she, you know, she realized, she just said, in the heat of the moment, emotions were running high. It was a very disappointing loss. I, I can understand that in a little bit. But what struck me was, and, and you saw this in many of the competitions, and I get it. These people, some of them have prepared their whole life for that one moment, and that might be the only minute that they get, and I, I get that. But it's amazing because for some of them, you see them compete and they place fifth or sixth, and they're just like, I'm just so happy to be here. This was so amazing. For others, it's like, I didn't get the gold. And, and they're just crushed. And it's like their whole self-worth, their whole a concept of who they are and their, their worth in this world is, is crushed because they didn't get the gold medal. The other thing that stuck out to me was just a beautiful picture. And it was, it was very quick. It was some women's snowboarding event. I, I think it was the half bite. I'm not sure. And when they come down and as they begin to rank, the top three 
snowboarders with the highest scores, they have to wait at the end. It's so awkward. They just kind of have to stand there waiting for everybody else to come down, thinking, okay, who's going to beat me? All right, I'm beaten. I can walk away. Well, they're getting toward the end, and most people have gone. And this one girl, she had either won bronze or silver. I honestly couldn't tell you. And she's waiting there for everybody else to come down. And somebody comes down and beats her. And, and what happened was so beautiful because she immediately walked up to the girl that just knocked her out of that medal and maybe even out of the medals entirely. I'm not sure. She walked up to her and just put her arms around her and gave her this huge hug and just, just held her there for a while and congratulated her. It was so beautiful. Somebody that was saying, this isn't all about me. I'm so happy for you and what you just accomplished. We live in a world that says and believes, well, this is all there is. What you see is what you get, so make the most out of it. And along with that is, is this concept, you've got to be the best you you can be. If you set out to do something, you should be great. You should be amazing. You should be wonderful. And then along with that comes an idea that even if you can't be great, make sure other people think you're great. Fake it if you have to. And then along with that is, well, if you can't be great, you can make other people think you're great by making everybody else look really, really bad. And so we step on one another trying to make ourselves great. And in this passage, John the Baptist shows us a different way. A way that makes little of self and much of someone else. And I've called this sermon, He is Greater Than Me. And some of the more grammatically astute among you might be screaming on the inside, that's wrong, that's bad grammar. It is, I admit it. I had to even look it up and it's supposed to be, He is greater than I, but that sounds weird, so we're not doing that. He is greater than me. How many, I put it in the email, how many of you without my note would have known that's wrong grammar? Anybody? Like, Wow. That's a hundred times more than first service. <laughs> okay. He's, it's weird. He's great. Anyway, I won't go into that. I, I told somebody, I literally probably researched that about an hour, trying to figure out, why I, can, I, can I do this? And at the end of it, I'm like, forget it. I'm doing it. He is greater than me. It's such a beautiful picture. And we're going to start, we're going to take this in three sections. In the beginning, the first section talks about a greater baptism. There's a really kind of odd conversation, discussion, argument that goes on in this passage. And I want to pick it apart because it's what develops into the next passage. So I want us to understand what's going on, starting in verse 22 of John chapter 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over a matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now, what's going on in this passage? First of all, there are three kind of different ideas or, or concepts of baptism that are mentioned in this passage. And they form a ladder going from lesser to greater. 
So I want to start with the one, and you see it in verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. John the Baptist, not John the Gospel writer, we're back to that confusion again, but John the Baptist uh, came as a prophet, as someone who would come to announce that the Messiah was coming. And one of the ways that he did that, an important way, is that people would come out into the wilderness to meet with him, he would preach, he would share about this coming Messiah, and he would baptize them. And we'll talk about what he meant by that. But it caused a lot of confusion among the religious leaders. What is it you're doing and why? Because they had a concept of what it meant to be dunked or washed in water and what that meant according to their tradition. So I want to look at that first. What is this Jewish ceremonial washing that they're coming to John's disciples and arguing with him about? Because somehow that ends up leading into this discussion about Jesus who's over here doing something else. Jewish ceremonial washing came in many, many different types. Uh, there were everyday different washings to prepare for something, uh, to symbolically remove the effect or the taint or stain of sin. Uh, it could be the washing because of some uncleanliness, something that they had done coming in contact with a dead body, something throughout their day, touching a Gentile, something they, that they just had to wash themselves for. The priests had other types of washings. One was before someone became a priest, they would be what we would call baptized. They would be either poured over or dunked into water, completely immersed, completely washed. And then throughout the day, as they served in the temple or tabernacle, they also would constantly wash their hands, wash their feet, different uh, ceremonial washings, depending on what was going on. There was another type of washing, and this gets probably closer to our idea of baptism, uh, you don't find it in scripture, but the rabbis developed a tradition. If someone converted from some other religion, worshiping Apollo or whatever else, and wanted to become Jewish, they had to go through this ceremonial washing and they would be completely immersed in water. And the rabbis loved to argue about how much water was necessary. See, that's not a new discussion. Uh, we didn't make that one up. It's been around forever. And, and large books were written on this. And, and they said any part of the body that wasn't touched by the water isn't made clean and they have to be dunked again. One rabbi took this so far that he started thinking, well, if the clothes are keeping the water from touching the body, there's only one solution. And this rabbi began teaching that you had to be baptized naked. So they would have to strip off all of their clothes. Now, I've discussed this with the elders as to whether or not we should change our, our mode of baptism. And thankfully, they decided no. So we're okay. Uh, I was a little nervous there for a second. But you understand that for them, this ceremonial washing, which again, they wouldn't necessarily have used the word baptism, but there's a similarity here. It, it had a twofold emphasis one was a cleansing or a removal of something. Removing an effect of sin. But it wasn't just that. It was also movement into something. For the priest, I, I'm, I wasn't a priest and now I am a priest. For the convert, I wasn't Jewish and now I am Jewish. For the person going into the temple, I was unclean. Now I can come into the presence of God. I can worship God. So it is from, from something and to something. And they're coming to John the Baptist, and this came up earlier in the book of John, in chapter 1 as well, when they come to John the Baptist and they want to know, who are you? 
John chapter 1, verse 21. Who are you? Because he, John the Baptist, is baptizing people. Now, what's the big deal? Well, think about the Jewish concept of these washings. You are cleansed from something. Now, John freely said, I baptize you with repentance, a removal of sin. They would have been fine with that. They would have been great with that. That made a lot of sense. But what about the other part? And and so they're wondering, what, what religious thing are you starting? What movement are you starting? Is this a new religion? Are you a different teacher? What are you baptizing them into? And John said, I baptize for repentance, turning away from something. But then he also pointed to Jesus. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 says, I baptize with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I. You see, John's baptism was from sin, repentance, and to this coming Messiah who was yet to be seen. And that's why the religious leaders struggled with it. Why? What what are they into? What are you pointing to? What's this new thing? And so here's John the Baptist in chapter 3 doing what he normally did. And this argument arose, which I think it often did. Why are you doing this? But as this argument's going on and they're coming to John the Baptist to talk about it, somehow the argument shifts from just John the Baptist and the Jewish leaders to, hey, what about that guy over there? What about Jesus and his followers? Baptisms are going on there too, and people are leaving us and going over there. And so here we get to the third baptism, the baptism into Jesus. What was Jesus' baptism about? John the Baptist had already told us, After me will come one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Holy Spirit is the very presence of God. It's not some symbolic presence of God. It's it's not a temple or a tabernacle. It is the very presence of God. It is a symbolic representation that you are removed from sin, has been taken away from you, and you are in something new. And what you're in is the very presence of God. God is with you because the sin has been removed. And fire throughout Scripture is the purifying presence of God. And John's saying, "I'm, I'm doing something symbolic, removal of sin, but... He will do it very specifically. When we are baptized in the Christian faith, the baptism itself is a symbol, but it means something very real. Our sin has been removed by our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Messiah that John was pointing to, saying, He's greater, go to Him. But then it also means we've been brought into something new. We've been brought into a right relationship with God, an eternal relationship with God. And so all of this sets up a context for John to comment on his ministry. But before we look at that, I just want to take a moment and say, if you're here and you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you've never been baptized as a believer, I'm going to challenge you. Number one, you're missing out on a powerful experience. To stand up in front of people in baptism to say, I am not who I was. I've been saved by Jesus Christ. I have new life in him. It is a powerful, powerful moment. But also, it's an evangelistic moment. 
It is a challenge and an encouragement to those who witness your baptism. So not only are you missing out, but others are missing out who could witness your baptism. And so I'm just going to challenge you. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and you have never been baptized, I want to talk to you about it. The elders would love to talk to you about it. We will fill this tank up on any given Sunday. We would love to have some baptisms to proclaim the gospel and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this conversation, this technical kind of argument about baptism is going on, and they come to John. And John gives this beautiful picture that he refers to as the friend of the bridegroom. Look at verses 27 to 30. To this, John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. I love verse 27 because the discussion that's going on, however it got to this point, the point that it gets to is people are leaving John the Baptist and his followers and going to Jesus. And they're coming to John the Baptist and to any leader of any movement, this is universally a bad thing. Hey man, you're losing people. They're going over to there to your competitor. I mean, what's up with that? And look at what he says. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. I believe what John's saying here is, if I had any following at all, if, if anybody appreciated my words and the baptism and my message, if, if that meant anything to anybody, it is only because God was at work in that situation. If you came here to listen to me, it's because God brought you here. If they are leaving now and God is bringing them to the Messiah, then praise God. It's not about me. Do you hear the whisper already in that verse? It's not about me. And then he goes into this illustration of a bridegroom and the friend of a bridegroom. A contemporary kind of phrase for this might be the best man. This is the close friend of the groom. But in that culture, the close friend of the groom had pretty big responsibilities. They had to prepare the wedding, the feast. They had to make sure the guests were taken care of. That was the responsibility of the friend of the bridegroom. And then the bride and the groom would come for the ceremony, for the feast. And and the bridegroom loved to make sure that everything was ready for them. Could you imagine the bride and the groom showing up? Let's take it to modern day, okay? And, and they show up and, and they walk into the room and everybody's like, hey, they're here. And the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, steps up and is like, yes, and I'm here too. Isn't that great? And they kind of push the bride out of the way. Get out of here. Hey, take some pictures. Get me in the picture. Would that be a good best man? Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I know some people that might do that. It's this beautiful picture of somebody who works really hard to prepare something that is not about them whatsoever. And somebody that when it is, or when those people for whom it is about, that person steps back and says, yes, this is what I've worked for. This is what it's all been about. John the Baptist has been preparing for Jesus to come. He wants people to leave what he's doing and follow Jesus. That's the most important thing in everything that he's been doing. And so he's not upset. He doesn't feel 
uh, unimportant. If anything, he realizes this is the fulfillment of what he's been trying to do. And he says in verse 30, he must become greater. I must become less. D.A. Carson writes, John finds his joy not in grudgingly conceding victory to a superior opponent, but in wholeheartedly embracing God's will and the supremacy it assigns to Jesus. This wasn't a loss for John. For him to be less than the best in this situation was the win. For, For Jesus to get all the glory was exactly what John wanted. For people to turn away from him and turn to Jesus was exactly what he wanted. It wasn't about him. It was all about Jesus Christ. Look at that phrase, he must become greater, I must become less. That runs so countercultural to everything we see. And and I would suggest even among Christians, we need to hear that reminder. He must become greater. I must become less. We are not here to build up ourselves, to build up our churches. Even though we're going through a renovation, we're not trying to have the biggest, best building around. We want a building that helps us to point people to Jesus Christ. We want people that point to Jesus Christ. We want teaching, Sunday school classes, preaching that points people to Jesus Christ. We want worship that doesn't make you go, oh, they're so amazing. Man, if you think we're so amazing, you need to listen more carefully. But we want people to listen to the songs and go, look at Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ. He must become greater. I must become less. And then we finish the passage in verses 31 to 36. And I believe here again we have John the Apostle chiming in and interpreting, applying, explaining what he's been talking about. I said last week, the original Greek, there are no quotation marks, so please understand that. Anytime somebody puts in where a quotation begins or ends, it's always a best guess. Maybe this is John the Baptist still speaking. Maybe it's John the Apostle. But again, based on the language, I think here we have John the Apostle speaking. Verse 31, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Here we have a presentation of two perspectives. One is from above, from heaven. It's the God perspective. It's the creator of the universe's perspective on us. The other is our perspective, from below. John uses the phrase from the earth. We've talked before about John's use of the world. In in John, in his gospel, the term world is, is almost always a negative term. It's the world infected by sin. That's not the world or the word that he's using here. The word here is earth. And it simply means that which was created, that which is not God. So we have the God perspective and the everybody else not God perspective. 
And the point that John is saying here is that the one who comes from God, the Messiah, has a far superior perspective on everyone else. Nicodemus was struggling with this. In John chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, we, we see this. Jesus is talking to him and saying, why don't you understand what I'm talking about? Nicodemus knew the Old Testament. He knew all the writings of the Old Testament. He knew the writings of the rabbis explaining the Old Testament. He entered into those arguments and could debate with the best of the scholars of the time. He knew all these things. But Jesus was saying things that Nicodemus was saying, this doesn't compute. Why can't I understand this? And Jesus is saying, it's because I'm coming from a different perspective. You need to accept what I'm saying instead of sitting in judgment on me and thinking you know better. You need to trust what I am saying. One of the most frustrating things as a parent is when your kids think they know more than you. Right? There are times as, as a parent to my, my kids, some of them are here, I'll try to be careful. Look, hypothetically, some family, when their kids come and, and, and say they're 12 or maybe 14 years old, and they come to their parent, and you're in this discussion, hypothetically, and, and the parent says something, and the kid says, well, no, I don't agree. I think it should be this way. Oh, I think you're wrong. And you, you go through, and you explain, you try to help them along. No, no, I don't agree. I, I think you're wrong. And, and, and sometimes as a parent, I, I just get to this point of asking, how old are you? I'm 12. I'm 14. I don't have that conversation with my four-year-old very much, but someday it's coming. And, and, and then I'll stop and say, well, how old are you? You're really old. And, and I'll say, okay, in my, I'm almost 43 years old. In my 43 years of life, do you think I've learned a few more things than you have? Yes. Do you think I know everything? No, they always catch me there. No. And, and I agree with them on that. But, but it's so frustrating when someone with, with 10 or 12 or 14 years under their belts thinks that they know more than you. Now, some of you are going, you're only 43. I mean, I've got a few more years on you. I know more than you. And you do. In some areas, absolutely. You have wisdom beyond my years. And it's so frustrating when someone younger tries to overthrow your wisdom. Now, take that difference and apply it to God. Because whatever difference there is between my wisdom, my wisdom, and my kids' wisdom, take that and multiply it by a billion, and then another billion, and another billion, and another billion, and that's, you know, I'm way down here, and God is way, way up there. And we're coming to God and saying, I think I know better. I I think I've got this all figured out. And it says on here, verse 32, he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. This is Jesus Christ saying, hey, I, I, I am God, and I've been in the very throne room of heaven, and I'm telling you what is true about eternity, and you're going, nah, it just doesn't match with what I've found out in my life. No one accepts his testimony. And then he goes on, and he gives this hope, though. Whoever has accepted it has certified that what God is that God is truthful. Friends, to accept Jesus as your Savior is to accept His truth and His authority over you and everything else. 
There is no way around that step. And I think today we try to sidestep that. We, we try to just bring people along, and, and that's good. But at some point, you are going to be smacked in the face with the truth that God is God and you are not. And you will be faced with a decision over and over again. Am I going to accept my way of thinking, or am I going to accept God's truth? And John here lays this out. The one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. And I think what he's referring to here is in the Old Testament, the prophets would receive the Spirit of God for a time to perform whatever action God has given them, whether a miracle or bringing the words of God. And he's saying here, that's not the case with Jesus. Jesus has the Spirit eternally all the time because he's actually God. So when he speaks, it's not only a temper, it's not a temporary messenger of God, it is truly God himself who is speaking. And yet, we don't accept his testimony. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Look at that phrase for a moment. Everything in his hands. What are you facing today? What struggles are you facing? What choices? What disagreements? What confusion? Whatever it is, look at that phrase right there. It is held in the very hands of the Almighty Son of God who has power and authority over your life and the other lives involved in that situation and the entire world. The Father has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This is, at its heart, not really about pride. It's not just about an attitude. It's not just about living humbly. It is accepting that God is God and we are not. God is the author of life. He's the creator of life. He's the sustainer of life. He's the purpose of all life. All life finds its meaning in Him. So when we say, here's God's way and that way is life, I say, no, I want to go any other way. There's only one other way to choose. It's a huge way, and it has a whole lot of paths on it, but it's all the way of death. And here John the Baptist is living this for us, saying, look to Jesus. He's the author of life. He's the Savior. And then John the Apostle is explaining this and saying, don't miss this. He has come from the very presence of God. He is God eternal. He is the only Savior. He's the one we have been waiting for. He is greater than me. Remember that. Tell it to yourself often. The world will tell you to write down little mantras to make yourself feel better and stick them on your mirror. Stick this one on your mirror. He is greater than me. And if you want to be grammatically correct, put in I. He is greater than I, finally. Whatever. Tell it to yourself. I use the phrase, God is God and I am not. That's my check in my life that when I feel my selfish pride welling up or I think it's all about me and I need to figure all this out, I just stop and say, God is God, I am not. Don't take God's job from him. He's way better at doing it than any of us. I guarantee. And ask yourself, when you're in an argument with someone, 
when you're going to visit your family, when you're talking to your neighbor on the street, when you're at work and and you're dealing with a difficult boss or a difficult employee, ask yourself, in this moment, is my goal to make myself look good or is my goal to make Jesus look good? Look good. Because you can't have it both ways. We make Jesus look good when we make little of ourselves and much of him. And we point people just like John the Baptist in our attitude and our actions and our words away from ourselves and to him. And the great irony, as we see in John the Baptist, is that while from a worldly perspective we should look at an elderly leader who is losing his following and we should feel sorry for himself and he should feel like a failure, John the Baptist says, I have joy. Because this is what I've lived for. The profound irony of this world is the more you seek to make much of yourself, the more worthless you are going to feel. The more you seek to make much of Jesus Christ and trust in Him, the greater the joy that is yours because of the salvation and the assurance you have in Jesus Christ. He is greater than me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, there may be those here today struggling with various situations. And maybe for some of them in those situations, they're trying to figure it out on their own. They're trying to make much of themselves. They feel like they have to prove themselves and help everybody else to see their greatness. God, I pray the truth of this passage, the truth of the testimony of John the Baptist, the truth of the testimony of Jesus Christ would cut through that. And that they would just stop and confess, He is greater than me. That they would look to your Son, Jesus Christ, bow their head in humble submission, and accept the greatness of Jesus Christ by accepting Him as their Lord and Savior. And Father, for all of us, may we live that acceptance, not just a one-time acceptance in prayer, but every day making the most of Jesus Christ, pointing to Him in everything that we do. I pray that that would be true of us as a church, that we wouldn't be here to build ourselves up or, or our attendance or our giving or our Sunday school class attendance, but instead to make much of Jesus Christ. And if that means that people come to know Christ, are built up in their faith and sent onto the mission field or to other churches to help them out or to plant other churches, then so be it. Because it's not about us. May we have the perspective of John the Baptist. He must become greater. I must become less. We pray this in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen.